What do you suppose is the most famous verse in all the Bible? Well, I suspect that many of you think it's John 3.16, so let's turn there. We've reached John chapter 3 and verse 16 and our regular exposition of the Word. Jesus has just explained the new birth to Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. Nevertheless, Nicodemus, a master of the Old Testament, fails to understand. Verses 16 through 21 now offer an extended commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And although these verses are often highlighted in red, we don't know whether Jesus spoke these verses, these words, or whether these are John's later commentary. It doesn't really matter either way. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. John 3 and verse 16 reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Probably no verse has been more widely used in gospel presentations than John 3 verse 16. As we have heard many, many Membership testimonies through the years, I dare say that John 3.16 has factored more prominently than any other verse in the conversion of our own people. John 3.16 was a favorite verse of the late Billy Graham, who preached the gospel with simplicity and power for nearly 80 years. It's been used by hundreds of evangelists, bringing millions into the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, the influence of John 3.16 appears to be waning in the 21st century. In 2019, Peter Phillips, the director of a research center for digital theology at St. John's College at Durham University, reported that John 3.16 was no longer the most famous verse circulating through social media. In an analysis of the popular website Bible Gateway, searches for John 3.16 have been eclipsed by Jeremiah 29.11. So would you turn to Jeremiah 29, and let's look at this verse that apparently is becoming more famous than John 3.16. Philip says, Whereas once John 3.16 was the poster boy text of the 20th century, the latest star is Jeremiah 29.11. In print culture, John 3.16 has been the most popular Bible verse ever, but it has been knocked off its pedestal by the social age. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 reads, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And friends, these are truly beautiful words. But deprived of their context, they're easily abused and used to support a false prosperity gospel. Taken in isolation as a text bite in social media, they can indeed lure people into a false sense of confidence. 
The context concerns a letter Jeremiah wrote from the ruins of Jerusalem after the Babylonian invasion. He wrote this letter to the Jewish exiles living in Babylon because of their idolatry. Look at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The context also speaks of false prophets and diviners deceiving the people with false hopes of immediate release from Babylon. You find that in verses 8 and 9, which I will not read. God intended for the Jewish exiles to serve out their sentence of punishment for their sins, for their idolatry. And Yahweh says concerning His people, you will remain in captivity for 70 years. And in the meantime, you should prove your repentance from idolatry by seeking the welfare of Babylon. Then, and only then, God says, I will deliver you. And at that point, God says, through Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Again, beautiful words. The context concerns restoration after punishment. And Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 is also followed by a summons to the exiles to pray and to seek God with all their hearts. Look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, Jeremiah does not use the term born again, but he is speaking of a fundamental change of heart, abandoning idolatry and seeking God once again. He's speaking of the new birth. And what if people refuse to repent? We'll look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, And I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence. And I will make them a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth. To be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord. That I persistently sent to you by by my servants, the prophets. But you would not listen, declares the Lord. Now, when is the last time someone shared those verses on social media? Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 is a beautiful passage that reveals something of the character of our God who restores people after judgment and repentance. But it does not promote the American prosperity gospel It does not promote the gospel of wealth and fame, a house on the beach, a sports car in the garage, a prosperous 401k, great health, and a trouble-free existence. That's not what it's about. And Jeremiah is not a prosperity gospel preacher who avoids God's judgment and promises prosperity here and now regardless of repentance and new birth. No one better exemplifies the American prosperity gospel than Joel Osteen. 
In his phenomenal bestseller, Your Best Life Now, Osteen has preached a false gospel to millions of Americans whose citizenship in a prosperous country has made them susceptible to bad theology. Osteen opens his book with a story about a man on vacation in Hawaii. He and his wife pull over on the road and admire a majestic house that's just set up there on the hillside overlooking the ocean. And the man says to his wife, I can't even imagine living in a place like that. And that's the problem, says Osteen. I quote, as long as you can't imagine it, as long as you can't see it, then it's not going to happen for you. The man correctly realized that his own thoughts and attitudes were condemning him to mediocrity. He determined then and there to start believing better of himself and believing better of God. It's the same with us. We have to conceive it on the inside. We have to conceive it on the inside before we're ever going to receive it on the outside. And friends, that's merely the opening illustration in a book full of spectacular theological ignorance. What has to be conceived on the inside is the new birth. What has to be conceived on the inside is not a dream about a house in Hawaii. You must be born again. Now, Mark Woods, commenting in Christianity Today, also writes of this curious shift of emphasis from John 3.16 to Jeremiah 29.11. I quote, On the side of changing times, the Bible verse that was a totemic Christian reference point in the 20th century has given place to one that's more in tune with the spirit of the age. John 3.16 has been replaced by Jeremiah 29.11 in the affections of the internet. The difference between the two verses is fascinating. John 3.16, beloved by Billy Graham, focuses on God's gift of, of Christ through whose death we can have eternal life. It's so widely known in Christian circles that its, that its impact is blunted. But it's a verse that deals with the profoundest mysteries of the faith, with life and death, a bloody sacrifice, and an eternal hope. It calls for a response, an existential choice between light and darkness. And he continues, what about Jeremiah? Originally a promise to Israel of restoration for years in exile in Babylon, it's now used as a feel-good affirmation that God has a plan for our lives and that everything works out for the best in the best of all possible worlds. This is a long way from Jeremiah's intention and a long way from real biblical exegesis. John 3.16 is far more demanding than Jeremiah 29.11. It is not as shareable in the Instagram age because it asks too much of us. It doesn't make us feel instantly better. It worries us. But if we don't grasp it and grapple with it, we will be left with an Instagram faith, quick but shallow, rootless and fruitless. Well, with that in place, let's return to John 3.16 and let's grapple with this text and its surrounding context lest we develop a rootless and a fruitless faith. 
To quote Peter Phillips again, people don't want to put a verse about Jesus' death upon the cross on social media. It's a bit heavy. Friends, we do not have the option of avoiding heavy verses if we are really going to be committed to every single line of Scripture. The human condition is so desperate that God had to act in a radical way. He had to send His own Son to make an atonement and to deliver us from our sins. That's what we sang about this morning. The Greek, the Greek expression behind God so loved that He gave in verse 16 emphasizes the incredible intensity of God's love. It speaks of a focused, burning, delivering love that God sets upon the world. If God does not relentlessly pursue sinners, we would all perish. The relentless, pursuing love of God sent prophets like Jeremiah, generation upon generation, to rescue his people despite their opposition. In the New Testament, the relentless, pursuing love of God is displayed through the ultimate astonishing, troubling death of God's own Son. Friends, are we so desperately sinful that the only solution is the brutal sacrifice of God's only Son? Yes, that's how bad our situation is. And verse 16 points to the monumental love of God and a tragedy of universal significance. The world is indeed so helplessly lost. Sin is so infinitely offensive to God. The chasm between the sinner and the Savior is so deep and so wide that only one solution will do. Only one Son, the only Son of God, can repair the damage done by our sin. The Bible entertains no other solutions. And John's emphasis on God's only Son emphasizes the greatness of the gift. Nothing else will do. Intense, divine love and a great divine gift are necessary because of our wretched human condition. A condition that is described in verses 17 through 21. Now verses 17 and 18 emphasize our pre-existing condemnation. I don't have to tell you that there's a great deal of discussion today in the medical and insurance worlds about pre-existing conditions. Is the insurance company responsible for paying for your pre-existing conditions? When someone dies of COVID-19, does he have pre-existing conditions? Well, all of us come into the world with a pre-existing condition. All of us die with a pre-existing condition. You may die of heart attack, cancer, COVID-19, or a car accident, but truly you also die because of your pre-existing sinful condition. You've already been condemned. Look at verse 17. And read it together with verse 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, friends, if you don't keep these two verses together, you will indeed wind up embracing a contemporary vacuous prosperity gospel interpretation of Jesus. The made in America Jesus refuses to condemn anyone. We know that, right? Jesus would never condemn anyone. Well, verse 17, taken in isolation, sounds like Jesus would just never judge anyone. He's just come to give us that house in Hawaii and make all of our dreams come true, right? But friends, we know better. The truth is, Jesus judges people rather harshly. Read the Gospels. Jesus, it was Jesus who said, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, serpents, a brood of vipers, and whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That was Jesus. Jesus asked, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus told us he, the Son of Man, will gather all the nations and judge everyone. Jesus does, in fact, judge everyone at the end of the world in his coming second advent. The fact is also, Jesus tells us that he and the Father are united in their judgments. They're one. People often view the God of the Old Testament as rather harsh and judgmental. He's full of wrath against sin. But Jesus in the New Testament is this sort of harmless, gentle, hippie God who just smiles and overlooks all of our sins and would never condemn anyone. Friends, that will not do. Jesus declares that he is one with Yahweh of the Old Testament. And that means that he affirms all of God's judgments, every last one of them. So don't read verse 17 as Jesus' abdication of his right to condemn the world. It's not what he's saying. So then what does he mean? Why does the text say this? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. What does that mean? Let's answer that question in two points. First of all, the text refers to the mission of Jesus' first advent. Jesus did not come in his first advent as a judge, but as a sacrifice. He did not come to judge us from his throne, but to be judged on his cross. That's why he came. He He was judged for our sins. But friends, you'd better believe that he will come again on the throne of judgment because he himself says so. And he doesn't contradict himself. He's coming again on a judgment throne. And secondly, Jesus didn't come to condemn us in verse 17 because we were already condemned. That's verse 18. Keep the two verses together. If Jesus, friends, is indeed Yahweh, then he condemned us when we fell in Adam. He condemned us when he sent a flood to destroy the earth. He condemned us when he delivered his moral standards from the roof of Sinai and we all fell short. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. 
Friends, he already condemned the world long, long before he ever came into the world. We were already condemned. Our sentence of condemnation was passed centuries before the incarnation. Well, friends, again, this modern notion of a Jesus who just never condemns anyone, but who only affirms us, is actually a denial of his identity as Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus came in his first advent to provide a means of salvation for those whom we already condemned. Now, you may have two objections, and let me respond to them very briefly. First, you might be asking, is that even fair? I came into the world and I was already condemned. I didn't have a chance. Well, let me give you the short answer. The fact is, this question really takes considerable time and caution to work through. And I'm not going to pause now to actually take the time to actually work through that question. But if you recall, when we were back in Romans chapter 5, we spent some time really dealing with this issue. I preached three sermons in Romans 5, 12 through 21, three whole sermons, and I attempted in those sermons to deal with the various views addressing the question of how we are already condemned in Adam. And if this is really a stumbling block to you, if this is really problematic, let me just encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons or post online. I don't normally do this. All right, but I gave, I gave it three sermons, all right, because this is, a big, this, is a, this is a thorny problem. I gave it three sermons, Romans 5, 12 through 21. I, I assume those are still on the website, although I never listen to my own sermons on the website. I can't stand to hear my own voice. I feel sorry for you out there, all right? But let's just say this, all right? You have no reason to believe that you would have acted any differently than Adam. You have no reason to believe that. Nevertheless, we can also say this, God has graciously responded to you with a free gift in Christ. You are, in fact, condemned in Adam. And you would have done the same thing Adam did. And friends, there are countless ways to keep on going wrong in Adam, and you've been doing it ever since. But if that troubles you, then friend, just embrace God's solution. The free grace of God through Jesus Christ. He's already given you the solution. You do not have to stand condemned in Adam. You can stand in Christ. That is God's answer. Now, Secondly, you may think that you have done nothing worthy of condemnation. This is rather rare, but most people recognize they've done something wrong, but maybe you think you haven't done enough. Actually, the fact is, most people don't realize just how bad they really are. Most people don't say, well, I've done a little bit here and there, no one's perfect. Actually, your situation's a whole lot worse than you admit. Most people do not recognize just how offensive they are to God in their natural state. We don't. Friends, it really is not up to you to decide how offensive you are to God. That's called self-righteousness. Don't tell me God will accept you. That is not up to you. You do not get to decide. Get, get to decide. We, 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 friends, we live in a world 
of radical self-righteousness where everybody is very quick and very eager to be offended by someone else. Everyone wants to be the innocent victim. Everyone wants to be abused by somebody else. But friends, your real problem and the world's real problem is this. You are offensive to God. That's your real problem. You are offensive to God. Most people do not want to admit their own condemnation. It's always somebody else. And the following verses explain why this is. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, do you want to know whether you're already condemned? Well, what do you do with the light? The light is how John describes the coming of Jesus into the world. Would you rather accept a distorted, a twisted interpretation of Jeremiah 29.11 or deal with the implications of John 3 and verse 16? You are perishing in your sin. And without God's rescuing love, you would be lost forever. And that is not a popular message today. But unless you are willing to embrace the light, the light of a Redeemer who came to be sacrificed, you will remain condemned. That's what the passage is saying. Let me put the question to you another way. What do you have to do to be condemned in the darkness of your own sin? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Do nothing. You are condemned already. I have students that come to my office from time to time, and I start talking with them, and it's apparent they're not even believers. And they, they spend all this time trying to justify their sin. I'm saying, you know what? You're condemned already. Just come into the light. When you turn from the light, you are simply exposing who you truly are. That is the message of verse 30. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. In our natural state, we do not want to face up to the reality of our own sinfulness. We do not want to face up to the reality of what's inside our own hearts. We would rather just conceal our sin under a cloak of darkness rather than face God's burning, searching light. In our natural state, we actually run away from God's law. We devise clever hermeneutical tricks to figure out how, oh, that one doesn't apply to me. Oh, that standard doesn't apply to me. Oh, I can work around that one. That's just clever hermeneutics. We align ourselves with false teachers who make us feel really good about our sin. They are false teachers. We justify our sin. We minimize our guilt. We flee the searing light of the gospel even while we claim to embrace it. And friends, it's all self-deception. You look at what the New Testament has to say about self-deception, you'll be astonished. Over and over and over and over again, the Bible says, don't be deceived because we are so easily deceived. We don't really want to come out into the light and let God expose our sins. I told you, this is not as popular as Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 out of context. 
You read the context of John 3, it's tough. We love John 3.16, but the context is really difficult. So friends, let's just talk for a moment about our culture. The Christian doctrine of universal human depravity has been vehemently rejected, especially since the 18th century Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, so-called, brought no light but darkness into the world. Deist philosophers Immanuel Kant, David Hume, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Paine just push God out of the margins of his creation. We don't need God involved in our world. They introduced to us a cold, distant God who created the world, but he hasn't gotten involved since. Like a giant machine governed by Newton's laws, the universe has just been grinding steadily along ever since creation. And there is no need for a Redeemer to come and to rescue us from our sins. God just gets marginalized. We do not need the light in our dark and fallen world. That was the Enlightenment. And then came Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and a host of other naturalists who explained away not only the Redeemer, but the Creator. In passages like John 3, or Romans 3, where God condemns all humanity, are relics of a darker, unenlightened age. That's how people look at our world today. But friends, Christians have always insisted otherwise. Parallel to the Enlightenment, a great awakening swept for the British Isles and the American colonies. The awakening was accompanied by the rise of Jansenism in France and pietism in Germany. Awakening preachers like John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Theodore Frelinghuysen, and Jacob Spainer insisted, insisted in their sermons that men are inherently sinful and offensive to God, their creator. Les Pascal wrote that all men are intuitively aware of two great truths. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I am unworthy of that God. We know it. We know it, but we turn from those truths. Now, friend, that 18th century divide between the awakening and the enlightenment was rooted in an earlier Reformation-era divide between Luther and Erasmus over the bondage or liberty of the human will. And that Reformation controversy was rooted in a thousand-year-old controversy that erupted with Augustine of Hippo and a man named Pelagius, a British monk who denied our original sin. Augustine insisted, no, we are all fallen, we are all broken, we are all dead in Adam. And friends, that divide is alive and well today. It just runs its course right through church history. It's what separates us from liberal theology, from easy believism, and from the Joel Osteens of our world. It separates us from the postmodern claim that we should affirm everyone just as they are. Remember, just as I am, right? Just as I am, so sung widely. Billy Graham loved this triumphant hymn, but I come with all my sin, just as I am with all my sin. Now, just as I am means you got to affirm me. you got to affirm me just as I am. That's where we are today. But friends, the most dangerous lie alive in our culture is that Christianity affirms us just as we are. 
And it's rooted in a misinterpretation of Jeremiah 29.11, as if God has great plans for your welfare, regardless of whatever sin you want to embrace. To affirm people as they are is to leave them condemned in Adam. The most difficult, but the most loving thing you can ever say to a sinner is that God will not accept you as you are. You must be born again. That's the whole point. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an influential 20th century Russian author. He was an insightful commentator on the century that gave us Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, Fascist Italy, Mao's Cultural Revolution, the Khmer Rouge, numerous genocides, American segregation, two world wars, massive starvation, totalitarianism and terrorism, all that in the 20th century. There was no bloodier century in all of human history than the 20th. And so far, the 21st isn't off to a very good start. Solzhenitsyn, rooted in that Augustinian tradition, wrote very perceptively in the Gulag Archipelago, quote, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. That's how we instinctively want to interpret the world. Draw a line between the good people and the bad people, right? That's how Pelagius and Joel Osteen interpret the world. But souls and Eason continues, the line dividing good and evil cuts to the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, that's precisely John's point and Paul's point. And that's the insistence of Luther, Edwards, and Orthodox theology today. Friends, there are not two categories of people, the good and the evil. That's not how the Bible divides the world. Sure, there are people who engage in charity and acts of kindness and peacemaking that is true. I do not deny it. The doctrine of original sin does not claim that people engage in every kind of sinful behavior possible. That's true. My neighbor is no Hitler or Saddam Hussein. I'm glad I don't live next to Putin. Nevertheless, friends, there is one category of people. There are wicked people who love the darkness. There is darkness in every human heart. You must destroy a piece of your own heart. That's what he's saying. So here's your choice. You can persist in that state of darkness and remain in a state of condemnation. condemnation. Or you can just, just bring your sin in the full light of day and just let the sun expose you for who you truly are. What you have to do is bring your Adamic identity into the full light of the sun. Go ahead and bring out your hidden lust and your secret thoughts and your natural reason which has fallen, and your godless passions, and your inordinate affections. Just bring all that right out into the light of the sun. And here is what you will discover when you're honest with yourself. You are condemned already. Paul said it this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now again, certainly none of us are ever so wicked as we could be. We could all sin more were it not for the restraints of society and reputation and peer pressure. But there is evil in every human heart. And you cannot divide humanity into sinners and saints. 
The Bible divides humanity into Adam and Christ. We all sinned in Adam. We all stand condemned in Adam. That's called original sin. And once you abandon the doctrine of original sin and universal condemnation, the gospel actually loses its potency. The gospel becomes unnecessary. The relentless redeeming love of God for sinners is totally unnecessary. You can just do away with John 3 and verse 16 and accept a distorted reading of Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. God is just this sort of gentle genie in a bottle who's just come along to grant you all of your wishes. But that's not the God of the Bible, friend. That is not the God of Jeremiah 29. Several years ago, in our previous home, I had a conversation with a neighbor who was a longtime member of a very progressive church. And he was thinking about getting out. And he related to me how members just gradually had begun to affirm each other in their sinful behaviors. And he used a very vivid illustration. He was an older man. And he said, you know, I picture Jesus Christ and he's nailed to this cross and he is suffering for human sin. And below the cross are all these progressive church members. And they are going around and they are affirming each other in their sins. You're okay. I'm okay. God accepts everyone. And he says, I look at Jesus and he says, why am I up here? Why am I up here? Friends, the gospel is for those who are already condemned and who acknowledge their condemnation. If you do not embrace your condemnation, friend, it's very simple. The gospel is not for you. It's that simple. If you do not embrace your condemnation, the gospel is not for you. Don't claim it. It's not yours. If you do not embrace your condemnation, you are not a Christian. It's impossible. You are not a Christian. The gospel is for those who embrace their condemnation in Adam and accept Jesus Christ as their atonement. Richard Weaver was an English professor at the University of Chicago more than half a century ago. In a very famous book, Ideas Have Consequences, he wrote of the consequences of the abandonment of the doctrine of original sin. He says, every man has become not only his own priest, but his own professor of ethics, and the consequence is anarchy. And that's our culture. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And Weaver says, modern man has become a moral idiot. Well, friends, if you want examples of moral idiots, just turn on the television. Turn on talk radio. Listen to the warped, twisted, self-righteous commentaries of the news analysts and talk show hosts and political pundits. It's out there. It's all around us. Moral discourse pervades our culture. People speak of rights and justice and identity and good and evil. The problem is with so much of that discourse, is it's precisely what souls need to identify. It's always us versus them. Here's our problem. And when we make ourselves the moral compass by which we judge everyone else, then the evil is always external to me. I'm the compass, so the evil is always external to me. But friends, you are not the moral compass. 
Instead of looking for people to affirm you, you, here's what you have to do. You have to destroy a piece of your own heart. You have to. You need to submit your proud human intellect to the searing light of the sun. You can't think clearly when you're an atom. You need to bring your hidden lust, your thoughts, your desires, your affections, your values, just bring them right out there into the light. And look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If we are willing to embrace the truth, friends, then just just walk right out into the light. Let the light of God just expose your hearts. And verse 21 actually expresses the result of the new birth. We no longer flee the truth. We no longer flee the light which exposes the darkness of our hearts. This is the result. We come boldly into the light of day and we, we, let, we let God expose what's truly in our hearts. And so as we come to the communion table today, can we just do this again as believers? Just, just come right out into the light. Just open up your heart to God. Let Him look inside and show Him what's there. And repent again of your sin. And let's keep John 3 and verse 16 paramount in our thinking. Sure, God knows the plans that He has for us. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. That's true, Jeremiah said it. But those plans funnel through a cross. God so loved the world with such an intense and burning love that He gave His only Son as a sacrifice for our wickedness, for our shame, for our depravity, for our darkness. And God's plan for your welfare and for your future and for your hope involve you being born once in Adam and born again in Jesus Christ. Shall we pray together? Father, I pray, Lord, that despite all the pressure that may surround us from a godless culture, that our hearts might be set on your truth and that we would just accept the words of the Bible and just come right out into the light and let it expose us for who we are. For anyone here today, Lord, who is just plagued by doubt and disbelief or denial, I pray, Lord, that today might be a day of salvation for him or for her. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.